So if you want to open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 10 is where we're going to start. And we're going to do a little bit of uh, an interactive moment here, uh, just to make sure you guys are nice and alert for what we're about to do. I'd like you to turn to a person near you that looks friendly uh, and discuss these two questions. The first is, what was your favorite subject in high school? And the second question is, which did you prefer, algebra or geometry? So these are your questions. What was your favorite subject in high school, if you can remember back that far? And which did you prefer, algebra or geometry? Go. Okay. I was waiting for the lull, and it wasn't happening. It just felt like you guys were going to run away with the service. So I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back. Hopefully you got some uh, nice information there, or maybe even a name of your neighbor if you didn't know it. But uh, I always hated algebra, high school and college. I hated it. I struggled with it. I much preferred geometry. Didn't like it either. Let's not, you know, let's be clear about that. But algebra was so much more difficult for me because it seemed completely abstract. Here's a bunch of numbers. Do something with this. Go ahead. Factor polynomials. And I just would look at it and go, what, what are we attempting here? What are we achieving? What's the larger concept that this is attached to? I have no idea what I'm doing or why. And so it was much more difficult for me to kind of hang on to uh, the concept. Whereas geometry, at least I could visualize the problem, right? It seemed a little, most of it seemed a little more practical and applied. And even if I didn't know the precise formula, there were multiple ways to come to an answer. At least that's how I felt about it as I remember it in my mind. So, and I think today's passage is a little bit like geometry. In other words, we get to see the shape of what God has been doing in redemptive history. We get to see the shape of his redemptive program. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about a lot of really technical theological uh, words, sovereignty, total depravity, election, foreknowledge, free will, responsibility, provenient grace, effectual calling. And you can get all these phrases out there and it can start to feel a little bit like an algebra equation. How does all of this fit together? And today, I think, in contrast, Paul's discussion about God's pursuit of Israel helps us to see the geometry or the shape of salvation history, the shape of God's redemptive program. So I'm going to do a little bit of a run-up here for those of you who weren't with us maybe for the last two weeks or just to remind us, because chapters 9 through 11 in Romans are really one unit. Uh, we want to understand them together. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, part one, chapter 9, primarily we looked at the sovereignty of God over salvation of mankind. Uh, that is, that he has graciously chosen to save some sinners. Uh, this is a doctrine known as election. And that God's election of some to salvation is not based on any goodness or any merit or any quality within the person themselves. And that God electing only some sinners to salvation doesn't undermine his justice uh, because he's not obligated to save any. What we are, all of humanity, is a rebel camp, enemies of God, and he has chosen to reach in and rescue some. That doesn't undermine justice, it just means he's extended mercy to some. And we, if we fail to understand that, it usually falls down in one of two areas. Either we fail to understand our sinfulness, 
or we fail to understand his true sovereignty. So the conclusion of that whole sermon was, if any of us is in Christ, there's no room for pride. Rather, we should rejoice. God has been very kind to us. And then last week, uh, part two of this, we looked mostly at chapter 10, and we looked at some FAQs, right? Some frequently asked questions that Paul anticipated by his audience. And those questions were something like this. If God is sovereign over salvation, why bother? Why bother being a witness to others? Why bother proclaiming the gospel? Why bother praying for the salvation of others? If God is sovereign, what responsibility do we have to repent or to proclaim the gospel? If God is sovereign, do we even have a free will? And if we do, how can he be sovereign over salvation? And if we don't, how can, he, how can we be judged for rejection? So pretty good questions there, right? And the general answers would look something like this. God's sovereignty over salvation doesn't negate our responsibility to respond to the gospel with repentance or to proclaim it to others. Uh, we do have a free will, as we found out last week, but it's compromised. It's busted. It doesn't work correctly such that we won't choose God. We won't choose righteousness or holiness or salvation. We rely upon the work of God drawing us to a saving knowledge of himself. If we hear his voice, we are to, we're responsible to respond in repentance and faith. And if we have been rescued by God and received that mercy, we must be his ambassadors because amazingly, God uses us as his instruments. We're part of his sovereign process of drawing others to himself. Um, probably, if I were to say, any questions? I suspect a few hands might go up just now, including my own. I have questions about my own sermons the last few weeks here. Uh, there's a great quote by J.I. Packer, and I meant to put his book in your notes again this week. I did not. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. It's about 126 pages, I think. And it's one of the crispest, most helpful books I've ever read on this subject. Uh, I think I first read it about 25 years ago. Um, so anyways, I recommend that to you. And J.I. Packer, um, in that book, has this uh, quotation about questions we might have on this subject. He says, in prayer, in prayer then, and the Christian is the sanest and the wisest when he prays, in prayer, you know that it is God who saves men. You know what makes men turn to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself. And the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. I thought that was a really interesting appeal. When you pray, the whole idea that you're praying underscores the fact that you trust in and are aware of the sovereignty of God. So today we basically return to a question that Paul started back in Romans 9 uh, and, and kind of into 10. He circles back to it here, and it essentially is this question, so what's the deal with Israel? Where's God's relationship? What's his relationship to her now? And so it would kind of surface something like this. Weren't they the chosen people of God? Haven't they largely rejected Jesus as God's Messiah? Doesn't that mean that either God's power or uh, his promises have failed? 
Has God written her off completely? Has the church replaced her? What's the deal with Israel? What is God doing with them? And what's in her future? And I'm going to give you the answer right up front because I think you're going to need to hold on to a fairly simple answer as we work through some of the tedious stuff here. And it's something like this. God has a loyal love for Israel. He has not written her off. In fact, his loyal love for Israel is the reason that we as Gentiles are included as children of God. Therefore, the full number of the elect has been enlarged because we're included. And while we might look around and go, this season looks pretty good for the Gentiles, stay humble. There is a future for Israel. All the elect of Israel will also be saved. So that's what we're going to kind of flesh out this morning. So look with me at verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. As Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. So first of all here, and we're going to move pretty quickly through the first chunk of this. Paul just acknowledges Israel's large-scale rejection of Jesus as God's Messiah, his provided Messiah. The issue is not lack of hearing. The issue is not a lack of understanding. The issue is clear. It is a matter of the heart. They were disobedient and obstinate. If you can go back and look in chapter 9, all of the privileges that God gave to Israel, this scaffolding, these, all of this helps sort of these tutors to show them what he was going to do with Messiah, and yet they still, still missed out. So this is something that Paul has experienced uh, firsthand. As we went through the book of Acts, we saw that he went around to different cities, and he went first to the synagogues where he would engage the Jewish population there about Messiah. And then oftentimes they would reject, some would believe, but most would reject and they'd push him out and he'd have to go on to the next city. So Paul experiences this firsthand. We see that the prophets themselves, they lamented this in the passages given to us. And it's, we see that it is something that has grieved the heart of God as well. All day long I have held out my hand. So here at the beginning of the passage and then all the way through to the end, what we see here of God is we see his radical pursuing love, especially of Israel. And God is continually rejected by her and it, he portrays himself as a jilted lover. So we move to our second point here. And this could start off in the form of a question. Has God completely rejected Israel? Has he written off the nation? And what follows here is really a picture of the lengths that God will go through to rescue his wayward ones. In other words, 
And if the past few chapters caused you to think about God in a way that you felt like he seems sort of aloof, he seems sort of robotic or indifferent or uncaring, mechanical, then that mistaken notion is corrected here as we see the radical pursuing love of God. Um, There is a book that came out a number of years ago by a guy named Joshua Butler. I am not recommending this book to you. Let me be clear. This book has been thrown a couple of times. I do that sometimes with books. I argue in the margins and then I get to a point of frustration and just toss it. (laughs) So this one has been tossed a few times. I will say I learned some interesting things in this book. I'm probably drawing you more likely to, you're probably more likely to read it now than if I hadn't said these things about it. But um, the title is The Pursuing God and the subtitle is A Reckless, Irrational, Obsessed Love That's Dying to Bring Us Home. A reckless, irrational, obsessed love that's dying to bring us home. How do you feel about that? I'm not calling God's love any of those things, okay? Uh, And I much prefer, there was another book written by um, Tim Keller on essentially the same subject. He titled it Prodigal God. Maybe you've heard of that one. And that line probably offends you a little bit too because you're like, prodigal God? In what way is he rebellious? The funny thing is, prodigal doesn't mean or didn't originally mean rebellious. Do you know what it means? Wasteful, lavish. The story of the prodigal son, the prodigal aspect describes his spending, the wasteful, lavish spending, not that he was a rebel. It's come to mean rebel because of the way we typically use it. But when Keller says prodigal God, what he is referring to is the lavish, extravagant outpouring of love and grace on rebels like you and me. That's why he uses that particular word there. It's not we who pursue and find God, but God who faithfully pursues the fallen, the rebellious, and the wayward, that we might be found and regenerated and redeemed. It's he who draws us to himself. Uh, In the book of Hosea, Uh, one of the most provocative books in the entire scripture. If you're looking for a little divine scandal in your life, read the book of Hosea this week. In this particular book, God portrays himself as a husband betrayed by a promiscuous wife. And he gives the prophet Hosea a terrible job. The job description for Isaiah is basically this. Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. And then I want you to live with her through all of the promiscuity, all of the adultery. And when she has kids that aren't even yours, raise them. Stay with her. Don't leave her. Suffer under it. Because you're a living illustration of how I feel for Israel's adultery to me. That's a tough gig, right? Tough job description. And that's meant to be a shocking portrayal of the unrelenting and unconditional love of God. So we might say that Romans 11 is kind of like same song, second verse here. It's not quite as scandalous as the book of Hosea, but the same theology is there. In other words, Israel has rejected Yahweh again, but this time by rejecting Jesus as Messiah So has God written Israel off? No. 
he is loyal in his love. He still pursues them steadfastly, maintaining his covenant posture despite her covenant betrayal. His, his love is demonstrated in this radical, sort of prodigal even, or extravagant fashion. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Did God reject his people whom he foreknew? Don't you know what, this, what scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought, to so, earn, sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did. But the others were hardened, as it is written, I gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So basically what we see here is though there has been this large scale rejection, God does not abandon them as a whole. But by grace, he has preserved a remnant known as the elect. And this is sort of a patterned response by God. Uh, first of all, there was, he kind of goes back Old Testament history. Hey, there was, uh, by grace, God preserved a remnant then. And Paul, current day, present day writing, by grace, God has preserved a present day remnant. And these seem to be precedents for what God is doing in the future. In other words, it seems to say, hey, I've done this in the past twice here. And I'm going to do it again. There is a group set aside. Uh, we might even say by analogy here, it's almost like uh, God is saying, uh, me and Israel separated but not divorced. Why? Because God won't sign the paperwork. He's not done with her. He refuses to give up despite her promiscuous ways. He remains a pursuing husband even though she is an adulterous bride. Right? Israel broke covenant but God hasn't quit. In fact, he's rather shrewd in how he tries to win her back. And I'm gonna offend some of you with this statement. I understand that in advance, but here's the shrewdness of God. He starts seeing someone else to hold the analogy. Or he starts casting his affection on another. And you know who it is? It's us. It's the Gentiles. And you might get mad at me for that sort of illustration or that language, but that's God's language in Hosea. That's the, the image and the metaphor that Paul uses here as well. Colorful as it is, I think it's almost necessary for us to see, for, to really capture the radical love of God for Israel and the lengths he will go through to get her back. He tries to make one people group, Israel, jealous by casting his affections on us, the Gentiles. I, I said earlier that I don't care for this book by Butler, and he's gotten in trouble with another book that he's written with another group. I won't go into all of that. 
But his subtitle is closer than I'm comfortable with. The radical pursuing love of God. That's the language I would have used in that book. So let's see what happens here. Um, Verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches." If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off an olive, of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted in to a cultivated olive, olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? I didn't count, but that's a lot of illustrations in one section, right? And I'm not going to unpack all of them. But just to make the point here, God has included the Gentiles in order to arouse envy in Israel that she might return to him and be saved. This made me think of um, our dog Huckleberry before he died here a couple weeks back. Our chocolate lab Huckleberry uh, was particularly bonded to me. And if I would go over and hug on my wife a little bit, Huckleberry would come over and whine and nuzzle and try to split us apart. He would get jealous. This is what God is doing here with Israel. He's trying to provoke a jealousy in her. So we start with this first question that I think is helpful. You know, have they stumbled to the point of falling beyond recovery? Is this just a slip or is this a full-on fall? As Alaskans, we get this. We do this every year. We have those walking through the parking lot at Fred Meyer, stepping out of the car, that foot goes down, and we get that little slip, and usually we recover. But about once a year, at least for me, about once a year there's a slip that happens, and the next thing you know, you see your feet out in front of you in the air, and you get the thud, and you're laying on the ground, a grown adult thinking, I'm not supposed to be laying on the ground right now, and you gather yourself up, and it's humiliating. I've already had one fall this year. A number of years ago, I was on the phone um, talking to actually a couple that's in the room right now. Uh, I was on the phone with them, and I stepped out of my car and fell right right out in the parking lot all the way to the ground while talking, never stopped talking, 
they never had any idea. I just kept going, but it was, I did look. I looked around. Did anybody see that? So we get this, and then that's sort of the question. We know there was a stumble here. Did they stumble to the point of full fall and no recovery? Are they spiritually lost forever? God, have you written the nation off? Have you abandoned them? Abandoned them? Absolutely. The answer, no. Amazingly, the radical pursuing love of God is wooing them again, even trying to make them jealous by casting his affections on us. But even as Paul says this, it's like he imagines his audience. He can hear how they're going to receive this. He pumps the brakes a little bit. And just before we might start to strut and swagger and think pretty highly of ourselves, he reminds them, don't be arrogant. Tremble. I think the temptation for Gentiles, particularly in the era that we're living in right now, is twofold. One, we think too highly of ourselves. Or two, some may think too lowly of Israel for her rejection of Messiah. These are the temptations that I think were available for Paul's audience at this same time, and he's trying to help guard them against this. So to prevent either of those errors, he basically says, hey, Israel's loss was your, your gain. Yeah, be happy about that. But can you imagine her restoration and how meaningful that will be? Or Gentile Christians, stay humble about your inclusion. Consider the kindness of God, but don't forget his sternness. The reality remains those who remain in unbelief will be cut off. Or to put a fine point on that, any who reject Christ will be cut off. Any who receive Christ will be saved. So now we turn to what I'm going to call sort of the pinnacle of chapters 9 through 11. This is the peak that we've been climbing towards here to get to the end to see what, uh, how this all turns out. And this leads us to what is a really provocative statement in the text. All Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may, um, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned... They are loved on an account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So this brings us to our fourth point here. And then I'm going to unpack how I get to it. The mystery of God is revealed. He has not abandoned rebels, Gentile or Jew, but all who call upon the name of the Lord, of the Lord, the elect, will be saved, including Israel. Okay, now I want you to do something for me. I want you just to rub your hands together. Okay, go ahead. 
Stretch your arms out in front. Take a deep breath. We're going into a fiddly section here. <laughs> I need, so I need your best attention. I'm going to try to unpack this, okay? A couple weeks ago, I showed you how Paul used the term Israel in two different ways in one instant, right? Uh, this was in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and he said this, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So we have two senses that he used the word there. He has ethnic Israel, those who are descendants of Jacob, and spiritual Israel. And I'm going to say that that is all of those who are elect for salvation. In other words, not all of those who are descendants from Jacob are the elect of God. Okay? Since that time, Paul has used the term Israel eight more times in this section that we're in here in chapters 9 through 11. Every time he's used it, it has been to communicate ethnic Israel or national Israel. And that turns out to be important as we ask this question, what does it mean when he says, all Israel will be saved? There are three different ways to interpret this. I've listed them in your notes. In fact, you have so many notes, I didn't even have time to generate small group questions for you this week. So if you're a small group leader, be warned. Three different ways we can interpret uh, all Israel here. The first is this. The whole community of the elect. Jews and Gentiles alike, from every generation. So those who interpret it this way, uh, this is sometimes referred to as replacement theology. And essentially what that believes is that's a claim that the church, all who are regenerate, all the elect, have replaced Israel. Uh, this was really popular in the early church. It was popular during coming right off of the Reformation. It's the view that John Calvin held and, and asserted, okay? Um, I, it's actually fallen out of vogue a little bit here recently, and I, it's not my favorite choice here. I, I don't particularly hold to this position, and here's why. These are the weaknesses with it. Paul has already uh, taught in Galatians, and even in Romans 4 here, that Gentiles could be included into the family of God as Gentiles. They did not have to become Jewish or practice in the ways that the Jews did. So to turn around here and refer to Gentile, the Gentile church as Israel would sort of contradict that message or at least muddle it. So hopefully you can see what I'm getting at there. The second problem with it is this. That interpretation, I think, runs counter to the point here. How many times throughout this passage has Paul been trying to quell Gentile pride? So to now turn around here and call them Israel, such that they might claim we're the true Israel, would be more likely to fuel that pride rather than to quell it. The third problem, and I think the, this is the most uh, serious problem with this view, is that it requires a shift in the way that Paul uses the term Israel. Eight consecutive times, including the verse right prior to this one, he has used it to refer to ethnic Israel. To say that it now means the church is to sort of throw in a whole new use that he's never, never used it that way before. All right, that's the first view. The second view, I know this is really in the weeds here, but that's where we are. The second view, this is the one that I hold. So if you're running out of energy, you can just believe this one, okay? <laughs> the second view is uh, that all Israel means all of the elect within Israel. 
And I favor this one because I think it's consistent with how he started in chapter 9, uh, verse 6, when he says, not all who are descendant from Israel are the elect of Israel. So I think there's consistency of language there. I think there's also a nice stylistic bookends. This is where the section began. This is where it concluded. And I'm using the term the same way. Uh, Another thing that I think supports, uh, or one criticism this has gotten, is for someone to say that all of the elect of Israel will be saved, some people will say, well, that's kind of like a purposeless truism. Why even say that? That's like saying, do you know, all apples are apples. So why even make the point? And that's a valid criticism. Uh, And my response to that is, but that's actually the very point that Paul's audience needs to hear. Because they're battling Gentile pride. We're big time. We don't even know. Look at the, there's hardly any Messianic Jews around, but the Gentiles are here in force. I think that's the very point that he needs to hit home, uh, that God has elect Jews uh, in the future here. So I think that's consistent. Uh, Also, I think it's consistent with the literary context here. If the question has been, what's the deal with Israel? Have they stumbled to the point of falling? Has God written them off completely? And all the answers have come back. No, I've not utterly rejected them. I've preserved a remnant before, a remnant at this moment in time. Though some are hard and right now, I'm still pursuing them, even by casting my affections on you, but the elect of Israel will be saved. I still think that holds up and is consistent. Uh, And then he closes with this. You may count unbelieving Jews as enemies of the gospel right now, but I'm still pursuing them. There's a future in store, and the full number of Gentiles, once we get to whatever that number is in God's mind, and that seems to suggest a finite number that he has in mind, once that number has been reached, then there seems to be a spiritual rejuvenation for Israel. All right, the third view, this one we'll do quickly. The third view asserts that all Israel means all ethnic Israel. Uh, And it basically, I think it has many problems. First of all, it turns out to be a kind of universalism. Uh, Second, the second problem is, I think it contradicts what is actually said in chapter 9, verse 6, where he says, not all Israel are the elect. So to now say that they will all be saved is a contradiction. And then also, maybe the most significant problem with it is this. If it's applied retroactively, in other words, if all, all of the Israelites that rejected God and Messiah all along are suddenly saved, then there is a salvation by something other than Christ Jesus. And that is a different kind of gospel. So I think that's a significant problem with the third view. So like I said, just go with the second view. How does that settle into all of this? Let me bring it to a close here. I know this, was a tough, this is a tough passage. The algebra of faith can be tricky. The computation, the mathematics of it, sovereignty, total depravity, election, foreknowledge, free will, responsibility, provenient grace, effectual calling. That math can be very difficult. But when we look at the geometry of God's redemptive program and the shape of it throughout history, we see God's loyal love for Israel. He never wrote her off as a nation and hasn't now. His loyal love for her is even the reason that we're in the faith at all. God is casting his affections on us at this time 
to arouse a jealousy in her that she might return to him. And while the spiritual season for Gentiles right now looks good, we might even have the sense of or feel like we have replaced Israel. Don't quit on Israel. God hasn't. He has a future in store for her where all the elect of Israel will be saved. There is a future coming, I believe, at the end times when many Israelites will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And seeing this whole shape, I think, shows us the radical pursuing love of God. Let's pray. Lord, this is really the big story of your relationship with mankind and who you're rescuing, how and why. I pray, Lord, I know there are many points along here where we have questions, where the illustrations might not connect with us, and we might wonder about you and your purposes and your reasons. But I pray, Lord, that if we have heard your voice by your grace and mercy and drawing, I pray that we who have responded by faith, Lord, would be good ambassadors of yours. That we would rejoice in the loyal and pursuing love of God that pursued us. And Lord, may we mimic that as we faithfully and loyally pray for our non-believing friends and family members as we faithfully articulate the gospel to them and faithfully live out our faith in a way that is beautiful and compelling. You are a loyal, loving, pursuing God. May we have just show even glimpses of that in the life you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I think there's a really uh, beautiful and appropriate way for ending um, the, a topic, a sermon on this topic, which is so difficult and Paul does it himself and at the end here in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? From him and through him and to him. For all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen.